All right. My name's Isaiah. I'm with Lighthouse Security here, and I'll be reading from 1 Kings 6, 1 through 7. In the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. The house that King Solomon built for the Lord was 60 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. The vestibule in front of the nave of the house was 20 cubits long, equal to the width of the house, and 10 cubits deep in front of the house. And he made for the house windows with recessed frames. He also built a structure against the wall of the house, running around the walls of the house, both the nave and the inner sanctuary. And he made side chambers all around. The lowest story was five cubits broad, the middle was six cubits broad, and the third was seven cubits broad. For around the house, for around the outside of the house, he made offsets on the wall in order that the supporting beams should not be inserted into the walls of the house. When the house was built, it was with stone prepared at the quarry, so that neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron was heard in the house while it was being built. All right, thank you, Isaiah. So, what are we doing this morning? <laughs> what is this? Are we having a class on uh, architecture and building things? What is going on? I thought we were gonna be in Nehemiah. Well, I pushed it off for a week and uh, you'll, you'll see why in a moment. So let's pray. Lord, we wanna uh, just ask God that you, you would speak to us because Lord, your book, the Bible is not only timeless, but it's timely. And even as we, we sang together, Lord, all I need is a word from you. Man, a word from you will change my life because your word is powerful. And so let your word speak deeply to us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, survey time. How many of you feel like this is not the same country as it was when you were growing up? How many of you feel like our country has changed for the better? Okay, I, I was gonna have to see what kind of drugs you were on if you were gonna raise your hand. We live in a country now where homosexuality is, is no longer called a sin and, and shameful, but it's celebrated as virtuous. We live in a country where schools are indoctrinating children with the idea that their gender is, is fluid. In some schools, I recently heard they actually have a a uh, meter or a sort of a chart that the child can come in each day and move that meter where they are on the gender spectrum. We live in a country where kids are being mutilated and we call it gender affirming care. We live in a country where the most dangerous place a human can be it's not the streets of Chicago on a Saturday night. It's in the womb. 
where last year nearly a million babies were killed. We live in a country that refuses to control its borders. We live in a country where apparently seems to be coming out that our current president is taking millions of dollars in bribes from foreign countries. We live in a country whose government spies on its citizens. We live in a country where free speech no longer really exists. We live in a country that is in the midst of apostasy. Many churches have, have downgraded the Bible from being God's authoritative word to being an archaic old book written by uncivilized men. Churches and church leaders today have been swept up in the cultural tide of being woke. And many pastors, they spend their time explaining away the scripture or, or apologizing for the Bible than they do just preaching it. Whole denominations have embraced gay marriage and the LGBTQ plus thing. Many Christians are, you know, perplexed by that and they think, well, what's wrong with the church? You know, what's wrong with the church? If the church would just be more of this or do more of that, then people wouldn't be leaving the church. And I tend to try and look at things biblically as much as I can in life. And if I'm looking at the Bible, then what's happening is that Jesus is removing lampstands. That's what's happening. Jesus is spewing people out of his mouth. That's what's going on. And so I love the church. I am a church guy. Jesus is a church savior, the husband of the church. And Jesus is Lord of his church. And so those who are falling away, leaving, deconstructing, whatever, we pray for them, pray that they'll reconstruct their faith. Now, I, I'm saying all this just because I really, really felt like I, you guys needed to be bummed out on Sunday morning. <laughs> like you needed just one good bumming out because you don't get enough of that during the week, right? So, so we're going to get to the encouragement uh, part of our message this morning. But before I encourage you, I gotta bum you out a little bit more. So, so just hang in there. So there, there's, a, there's a demonic philosophy or ideology that's fueling all this change. And, and I wanna kinda point to what's happening behind the scenes so that we can see it, we can see it biblically. And uh, you know, from, from a philosophical standpoint, we would call it progressivism. Progressivism. So progressivism is, of course, you hear that in politics, the progressives, you know. Uh, but progressivism, it's an ideology rooted in the idea that human beings are basically good and getting better, rather than sinful and getting worse. <laughs> and so it promotes the idea that truth is merely personal, not universal and transcendent. Progressivism promotes inclusion and diversity, but it rejects freedom of thought. 
Now you try and square that circle. Um, so I believe David, King David, thousand years BC, quite accurately predicted the very day that we are in. In Psalm 2, and I'll just read it to you, Psalm 2 verse 1, why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So David, in a messianic psalm, that is a psalm predicting the coming of Jesus, David, at, at the time that is near the return of Jesus, he predicts that there will be powerful people in the world, government leaders, tech oligarchs, billionaires, you know, the ones who meet at Davos once a year to try and figure out how we can fully take control of planet Earth, and they not, they're not even secret about it. They meet, they wanna, they wanna break free from the, the restraints that have been placed upon mankind by the Father and the Son, Jesus Christ. These restraints that largely have been the foundation of Western culture for hundreds of years now, and in many other parts of the world as well. So those rules and those laws, they say, have been holding humanity back for far too long. So, so the Bible, these rules and laws, the Bible says that God made them male and female, just two genders. Well, that's pretty limiting. That's pretty restrictive, they say. So we gotta break that chain. The Bible is so prudish about sex. Let's break those chains and affirm men with men and women with women. What's wrong with sex with children, by the way? It's not sick and deviant and perverted. They're just minor attracted people. They're people too. And we're hearing more and more of that. And so mark my words, that's coming down the pike. This is where progressivism leads. And it will culminate with a last day's return to the Tower of Babel, a uniting of humanity against Jesus Christ. It'll feature a one world government with a digital monetary system to control the people. You're hearing about the government wanting to go digital with our money now, aren't you? It's like being floated as a real thing. They want the control. So there's nothing physical. It's all digital. Listen, I've been teaching the Bible for thir over 30 years. And I've been reading Revelation 13 for all those years. And even in the late 1980s, oh man, somehow this world is going to be cashless. Somehow this world, I don't know. You know, and back then they were just getting, I think they were just getting the barcode thing <laughs> dialed in, you know, it's like, ooh, ooh, maybe it's that thing, you know, and people speculated. And now it's like, oh, yeah, we're going there. We're going there. It's forming right before our eyes. Everything we're seeing happening to our country, to the world, it's, it's ultimately a product of antichrist spirit.
So, so progressivism, it's, it's a demonic fruition of Antichrist spirit. So 1 John 4, 3, the spirit of Antichrist is in the world already, John says. Back in 95, or in the 90s AD when he wrote 1 John. Antichrist spirit's already in the world. Antichrist, we've talked about this quite a bit over the years. Antichrist means, yes, against Christ, against Jesus, but it also means instead of, a replacement for. So, so in other words, Satan is busy providing, uh, you know, things to replace Jesus in people's lives. So Satan is busy offering people hope apart from Jesus offering people meaning apart from Jesus, a future apart from Jesus, a world without Jesus. And eventually a man who we call the Antichrist will set up shop in a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem where he will rule from. And he will set up an image, his image in the temple in the Holy of Holies, he will desecrate the temple. It's known as the abomination of desolation. And that image will come to life. And now here we sit with the whole AI thing, just booming, right? I mean, the technology is going so fast. Like even the people developing it are scared of it, right? Everybody's talking about, well, what if it gets consciousness? Like, could it? I don't know. Nobody knows. And so the... the line between what's real and what's not is getting blurred. You have AI, you know, generated everything now. And people, and you go, is that real? Is that not real? And, and what is reality? It's getting harder to discern. And so, who knows, but what technology might be employed to bring the beast to life in the Holy of Holies in a way that will demand people's attention. Man progressing apart from God is Satan's big lie. And so the technological explosion uh, that we've experienced in the last number of decades has fueled that lie and duped man into thinking that we're making progress. But the opposite is true. All of this so-called progress has the world on a collision course with the true Christ, the one who made the world, the one who owns the world, the one who's coming back to rule this world. And so Jesus came the first time humbly to pay for our sins, to, to beat death by rising from it. But when he comes back the second time, he's going to crush the government and he is going to destroy his enemies. So it's hard to cheer for that in a way, right? Because we're going, ooh, that's going to be an ugly time. Yeah. It's going to be ugly. Revelation, if you were with us a couple years ago, you know, it's Jesus trampling out, stomping out the grapes, blood flowing. Listen, we don't, we don't soften this stuff around here. 
So Psalm 2, it goes on to reveal God's posture, what's happening. So all this stuff is happening. The, the power players in the world, they're getting together. They're strategizing. How can we break free from the restraints of God upon cultures and upon the world? Psalm 2, 4 says that the Father who sits in the, in the heavens laughs. He laughs. And the Lord holds them in derision. Like, really? <laughs> really? You're going you're gonna to, like, wrest control from my planet. Good luck with that. Verse 5 says, he will speak to them in his wrath at this point and terrify them in his fury. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. That's, that's the temple mount. That's where the Antichrist and the, the image of the beast, that's where all that stuff is happening. No, I've set my king there. And I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, Jesus, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. And you will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Now therefore, O influential billionaires and Klaus Schwab and all you guys, kiss the sun lest he be angry. Serve the Lord with fear. For his wrath is quickly kindled and blessed are all who take refuge in him. So church, we serve the true and the living God. And he is the God who is in the heavens. He does whatever he wants whenever he wants, however he wants, without anyone stopping him. And so when you look around and you see, oh my goodness, this world, this country, it's, just, it's so you know, deteriorating and evil and it's so oppressive and so on. Listen, our God has things right on his perfect timetable working out for his good will and plan for the culmination of the ages where Jesus Christ comes back to set up his kingdom. We're right on time. And God's chosen you to live right now for such a time as this. So, God's people are the only humans, and here's the big idea, and we start getting encouraging here. God's people are the only people who are truly progressing. Now, now I say that in a very literal, literal way, because unless you are born again, your life will end with judgment. You'll be in hell, which is outer darkness, utterly alone, in torment. But those who have come to Jesus and put their faith in Jesus, they will increase day by day and progress year by year until 
we culminate with being in the presence of Jesus himself. So, Proverbs 14, 18, the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until the full day. So that's the path you are on, Christian. You are, you are gonna keep on growing in Jesus, and then when you breathe your last breath on the planet, you're gonna breathe in your first breath of heaven's air, and you will be transformed and changed. I was listening this last week to a portion of Joe Rogan interviewing Oliver Anthony. You know, I, probably most of you have heard of Oliver Anthony by this point. He's the guy who wrote and sings the rich men north of Richmond. Who has not heard that song at this point? Okay, there's like eight of you, which that's about right. I think there's eight in a, you know, multiply that around the planet. There's about 800 people on planet Earth that haven't heard that song yet. And so anyway, as far as I can tell, Oliver Anthony was, you know, this guy living in the woods in, I think it's Virginia. And, um, you know, he's poor, he's a musician, he's a songwriter, he's, you know, addicted to drugs and alcohol. He, gets, he gives his life to Jesus just recently, like a few months ago, and, uh, and records this song in the woods, and it goes to number one on every chart. I mean, can you imagine? You give your life to Jesus, <laughs> and you record your song, and you put it on the internet, and you're ahead of Beyonce and Taylor Swift. You jump line in front of everybody just like that. And Joe Rogan is talking to him. And Oliver, I think his real name is Chris, Chris something, but anyway, he's telling Joe Rogan about his conversion experience. And, and then he asks Joe if he can read the Bible to him. And he opens up to Proverbs 4. And he just begins reading a bunch of verses out of Proverbs 4. And Joe Rogan is like, whoa. Whoa. And he gets done reading, and Joe Rogan is like, that's effing profound. <laughs> if you know Joe Rogan, he, every other word is the F-bomb. But he's, he's impacted by God's word, right? Listen, wisdom, wisdom doesn't change. Wisdom isn't progressing. Wisdom is eternal. Wisdom resides in Jesus. And so when a person comes to Jesus, they begin to press into Jesus and begin to live wisely, begin to walk in real wisdom, the eternal wisdom, the wisdom that's in Jesus. And so listen, this idea, it, wisdom isn't progressive. People progress when they give their life to Christ and the Bible. That's why you say it's, it's a timeless book. It contains the wisdom of the ages, and it contains wisdom for this moment, for your life right now. God will speak to you from his word. It's the only book in the world where the author shows up to help you understand his book every time you open it up. So now for the encouraging part. 
Christian, this is as bad as it's going to get for you. This is it. This is your hell. Now, for some of you, it can get pretty bad, right? I mean, there can be terrible tragedy. We don't have to look very far to see people going through terrible things right now. You think of the fires in Lahaina and people being burned to death. You think of, you know, just, just all sorts of terrible things. I mean, people can suffer greatly. God's people can suffer greatly in this life. But listen, that, that's, this is the worst it's going to get. No matter what your level of suffering in this life, it, this is as bad as it's going to get for you. And so there's an interesting detail in 1 Kings 6. I know some of you are wondering, what in the world does that text have to do with what you're talking about? Well, there's an interesting detail, and we'll just read verse 7, 1 Kings 6, 7, that we'll pull out from here. Uh, Solomon building the temple, right? The first temple, glorious temple, God's house. His daddy, David, couldn't do it. God wouldn't let him. Man of bloody hands. David, you know, sort of collected resources. Solomon gets it built. But here's the detail that'll shine some light on our current situation. First Kings 6, 7. When the house was built, meaning the temple, when God's house was built, it was with stone prepared at the quarry so that neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron was heard in the house while it was being built. Isn't that interesting? So they prepped all of those giant stones, the limestone, down in the quarry, and they chiseled, they hammered, they got everything shaped just right, and they then transported it up to the Temple Mount, and they put everything in place, already shaped, already ready for its final place. So there would not have to be the sound of hammers and chisels and so on up on the Temple Mount in God's house. Just everything being put in its proper place. That's it. How many of you are aware that the Old Testament temple actually pictures a New Testament truth? Anybody? Is any bells going off? For instance, 1 Corinthians 3.16, it says, do you not know, and, and Paul, I believe, is speaking to the church at Corinth, do you not know that you are God's temple. God is in you. Meaning the church, that this is, this is a temple. Paul speaking to a local church, he's saying that the local church, not the building, but the people form a temple of sorts. Peter speaking to a local church, 1 Peter 2, 5. You yourselves, like living stones, like each one of us, a living stone, being built up a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So the Old Testament temple, picturing the New Testament temple, which is God's people meeting together, gathering in buildings, gathering at times outside of buildings, gathering in homes, gathering in all kinds of, right now, all over planet Earth, there are little 
temples that are formed, God's people gathering, and they're formed in order to offer sacrifices of praise to God. Each one of us a living stone. And we rub against each other. We live in proximity with each other. We fellowship together. We worship our God together. What are the spiritual sacrifices? Oh, there's, there's lots of them in the Bible, but certainly praise and worship. Let, Hebrews 13, 15. Let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise to God. In the Old Testament, they would offer animals, kill the animal and so on, as God prescribed in the Old Testament. But we offer praise to God. So when you were singing just a few minutes ago, that's, that's you offering a sacrifice and God going, yeah, that pleases me. That honors me. We can offer sacrifices to God by how we love sacrificially. Ephesians 5.2, we walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We sacrifice ourselves for each other. We sacrifice our own personal wants in order to put each other above our own wants. And God goes, oh, that's a good sacrifice. We give our money, we tithe to our church, we give to certain you know, mission endeavors and certain things that are upon our hearts. We give and that's a good sacrifice. Philippians 4.18, I'm well supplied, Paul says, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts of money, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. When you write the check or you give the money, God goes, pleasing sacrifice. Those are all spiritual sacrifices that you as a priest, a New Testament priest, can offer to the Lord again and again. So we're individuals, we're living stones, we're fit together with other living stones. It's a work in progress, the completion of which it won't take place until the, the church is raptured, transported to heaven. But with that in mind, Think about this with me. Let's consider the text. We're told that the stones were made ready before they were transferred to their final destination. All of the work was done in the quarry. All of the hammering, all of the chiseling, all of the shaping done ahead of time, and then it was relocated to its permanent location so that there would be no sound of the hammer, no sound of a chisel, no sound of you know any of that kind of thing going on in the ultimate destination. The chiseling, the shaping, the noise, the sweat, the frustration probably, done. That part's over. Gang, I think it's becoming obvious to you here, isn't it? This is the quarry. You are a living stone. So while you and I are here, we are gonna hear the sound of the hammer and of the chisel, and we're gonna get ting, ting, all the time, pretty much every day. 
And every, and, and I kid you not, I'm not being hyperbolic when I say everything that frustrates you, everything that rubs you the wrong way, everything that pokes you is God chiseling on you. How many of you know Romans 8, 28? How many things does God cause to work together for good to those who love him? Whoa, that can't mean all. Can it? Can it mean all? Man, I have looked for a way, for a loophole in that, for, if for, a, for a, a boundary to that verse. Cannot find the boundary. So everything, everything, every win, every loss, every frustration, it's all working for your glory. So this is the pits. This is the quarry. This is a, as bad as it's going to get for us who are being hammered on and chiseled on as we're being shaped for our ultimate destiny so that when we get there, there will be no sound of the hammer. There will be no more chiseling. We will be perfected. We will be glorified. No more tears. No more pain. No more selfishness. No more grumpiness. What a day that will be. And that day is in our future if you're in Christ. Now, a couple of thoughts to think about uh, before we head to the table of communion this morning. So what this ought to do for us, and I think I'll give you two thoughts here this morning. N number one, it should cause us to live our life with purpose, with focus, with vision. So when I understand that I'm a living stone, I'm being prepped for my alternate destination, it'll give me purpose and meaning. And even to the most mundane things and the difficult stuff that I go through, I'll, I'll live life with intentionality. I'll be constantly aware that my life now is being prepared for my life then. My life here is being prepared for my life there. And I'll live with the awareness that my life is, is measured and limited here, that it has very real limitations to it. The psalmist Moses, how many of you know Moses wrote a psalm? He wrote one. It was a big hit. He, uh, it was almost like Richmond, north of Richmond uh, in 1000 or 1500 BC. So Psalm 90 is Moses' psalm. And in Moses' psalm 90 verse 12, he says to the Lord, teach us to number our days so that we may apply our hearts to wisdom. Now, that, now if you think about that, that's, that's a weird thing to pray. Like, have you ever just like calculated about how many days you got left? Like, I'm 61, and you get 365 a year, now the 10 years of 3,650, 10 years, that'll be 71. Another 10 years, that's a little over 7,000 days, that'll be 81. 8,000 or 7,000 days. So that's weird, right? Moses says, that's exactly what you should do is think about the fact that your life has a very definite end. You've only got a certain amount of days. If you will do that, you will find yourself applying yourself in your life wisely.
It will teach you. It'll, it'll rest your, your greedy hands off of the stuff of earth. You, you know, you're just greedily hanging on to stuff, and, and God's like, why? Like, what's the point of that? Ephesians 5.15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Be wise about how you live your life. Suppose you had a bank that credited your your account each and every single morning with $86,400. Every day of your life, you got a fresh new deposit in your bank, $86,400 every day. But there was one catch, the balance could not be carried over to the next day. So, So if it doesn't get used in the day that it was deposited, it would be gone forever. What would you do with $86,400 if it was deposited in your bank account every day? You would draw it out and spend it, right? I mean, duh. You do have a bank account. Every one of us does. We're all given 86,400 seconds in our daily bank account. And if we don't spend them, they're gone forever. The clock is ticking. So it carries over no balances. If you fail to use the day's deposits, the loss is yours, it's mine. There's no going back. There's no drawing against tomorrow. So so keeping my eye on the prize and my heart fixed on the eternal, it'll cause me to be fired up for Jesus and living my life for Jesus. No matter how weird and wacky and off the rails the world gets, it doesn't matter. I want to apply God's word. I want, to, I want to see the chiseling happen in my life. I'll embrace it. I won't, you know, go, oh, I don't want to, you know, people say, I don't pray for patience, man, because God sends, you know, trials. Like, that is so dumb to say. That is such a dumb thing. That is such an immature thing. No, Lord, shape me. Chisel me. Like, go to work in my life. Make me more like Jesus. That's, that's the road that I'm on. That's where I'm going. Why in the world would I, would I place some, some level of temporal comfort as my ultimate aim above becoming more like Jesus? That is stupidity. Lord, you're the potter, I'm the clay. Start pushing on me, Lord. Start chiseling. Start working. I want it. When you understand that you're in the quarry and you're heading for heaven, where there's not going to be any sound of a tool anymore, and that part's done, it'll help you to stay focused. One more, and we're done. Secondly, knowing that we are indeed being prepared for our ultimate destiny. We're being worked on here, we're being shaped here in a way that we won't be shaped there. It'll cause us to live life joyously, joyously. 
So Isaiah 61.10 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For he's clothed me with the garments of salvation. He's covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments. As a bride adorns herself with jewels. The Lord, the joy of the Lord is my strength. We'll, we'll come to that in Nehemiah in a few months from now. They were, they were weeping and because there was sorrow over sin and all that. And, and God comes in and says, stop weeping, man. It's a day to rejoice. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. There's a real danger here in the quarry, here in the pit we call earth. We can get bummed out. We can get down and out. We can lose the plot. I was thinking about this this week. You know, in John chapter 4, you have Jesus meeting with the Samaritan woman at the well, right? You remember that story, some of you? Very famous story. And she says to Jesus, or Jesus says, hey, I have living water. You drink it, you, you don't need, I mean, it'll just totally satisfy you. And she goes, give me some. And he goes, well, go get your husband. <laughs> and she's like, uh, I don't have a husband. Oh, he says, you're right. You've had five. And the guy you're with now, you're living with. And she's like, yeah, I think you're a prophet. Uh, and then she tries to change the subject to where the Jews worship and the Samaritans and all this stuff. But, but isn't it fascinating? Why did Jesus, Jesus pivot the conversation to her relationships and to her sex life? He says, I'm the living water. And she goes, I want some. And he goes... Go get, go get your guy, knowing that he's going to draw out of her that she's been with a bunch of guys over the years. Why would he, what's the point of that? He was saying, I believe you've been looking for the water of life in love and in romance, but it is not there. It does not reside there. It resides only in me. But even Christians make this mistake. They, they ask of their marriage what the marriage cannot give them. Marriage does not have living water. And they, they expected their marriage to be the be-all and the end-all, the happily ever after kind of thing. And because their expectations aren't being met, because he or she isn't, you know, the person maybe that they thought they were going to be, the result is an unrelenting pressure on the marriage, which creates a simmering dissatisfaction that sometimes blows up into arguments, and it's just this, this tense atmosphere in the home. Christian, you need to realize that your marriage, our marriages are not designed to be living water. They are de designed to be a foretaste of the glory that's in our future. When we will be married to the one who has the living water. 
Man, I love my wife so much. I love her. I love her so much. She is my favorite person on planet Earth. It's not even close. And I love our marriage. I love being married to her. We've been married going on 39 years. 39 years. Yeah, that's, that's all for Pam. Uh, I'm sure you're going, dang, she is quite a woman being married to Fadness all those years. As much as I love my wife, there are limitations to what she can do for me. And as much as she loves me, there are limitations to what I can do for her. Neither of us have living water. Marriage is, is really the primary relationship where we get to work out our salvation. But it's temporal. And if you marry young, you know, you might get 50, 60 years together with your spouse, and then one of you is going to die. And you won't be married in heaven. For some of you, that's like, whew. And for others of you, that's a sad thought. It's like, oh, doesn't mean that you won't know each other, doesn't mean that you won't love each other, doesn't mean you won't be in relationship, you just won't be married. Because there is no marriage or given in marriage in heaven. You're married to Jesus now at that point. And that's the marriage that you ultimately long for. Your current marriage is noisy, lots of clanging hammers and chisels going on day to day as you work through your stuff together because you're in the pit, you're in the quarry. So Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions, and if we're not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. So Jesus went to prepare a place for you and now he's preparing you for the place. That's the idea. This is the pit. This is, you know, the quarry. This is where the chiseling happens. It's not for nothing. All things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Our light and momentary afflictions are working out for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. It's all part of life in the quarry. You are progressing, Christian. And you are the only people on planet Earth who are progressing. Only those who come to Jesus will receive eternal life. Let's pray. Lord, we look around at times at what's happening in our country and in our nation, and it just can be so oppressive. And, and we think of our kids or our grandkids growing up in this current climate and culture and it creates stress and anxiety in us and 
But Lord, you don't want to be carrying around, you want us to be carrying around that extra kind of weight in this life, Lord. You want us to be living joyfully and, uh, and courageously in these days. Not being ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it is the power of salvation. And so, Lord, we're not going to apologize for the truth. We're not going to try and water down the truth. Lord, we're just going to Lord, speak the truth in love. And to those who are caught up in this cultural moment and the weird ideologies and, and all the stuff that's going on, Lord, we want to be ambassadors for Jesus and beseeching people to be reconciled to God through Christ, who is the only answer, the only hope. All other offerings are antichrist. And so we pray for our nation, Lord. We pray for revival. God, we pray that there would be a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit. God, we pray that for our city. We pray that drug addicts, addicted people, hopeless, would turn to Jesus. We pray that religious people who are trusting in their own good works would abandon them and trust in Jesus. We pray that, Lord, lukewarm Christians that have maybe just had a cultural Christianity but have never been born again, that they would come to know you in your reality and be saved. God, we pray that you would give us opportunities, Lord, to love and to share the gospel. Lord, with family, with coworkers, with people we meet just along the byways of life. And that we would be not reluctant, Lord, to talk about you to others, but that we would be quick and bold. Lord, meet us at the table this morning. Forgive us our sins. Wash us clean, Lord, of the filth Perhaps that's gotten on us this past week as we've made our way through the world. And Lord, you are the water of life. And so we drink of you this morning, Lord. Heal us, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You are invited at this point to make your way to one of the communion tables. If you're not a Christian here, listen, this is, this is only for those who have intentionally given their life to Jesus Christ, been born again. But if you're not a Christian, you can become one. That's the reason that Jesus came, was to make a way for people like you and like me. And if you'd like to become a believer in Jesus this morning, just if you're listening to me right now, just bow your head right where you're seated and, and pray to the Lord and say to him, just repeat this and say, Lord Jesus, I come to you now and I put my faith in you. You died for my sins on the cross. You rose from the dead. And now I trust in you as my Savior and Lord. I give you my life in your name. Amen.